Welcome to Elevating Consciousness, the podcast that helps you discover deeper levels of truth, meaning, and wholeness. I'm your host, Artem Zen, and today's guest is a meditation teacher, a podcaster, and an artist. He has extensive experience in contemplative and spiritual disciplines, elite athletic performance, extreme outdoor survival, and human behavior. His vast array of abilities doesn't stop there, as his original music was featured in several Netflix series. He's also the host of the Guru Viking podcast, where he interviews some of the most prolific spiritual teachers and practitioners from all around the world. Steve James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Artem. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of the podcast, which I hope we can talk about a little bit later. Uh, but first, I'd love it if you could share a little bit about your upbringing and your background and maybe some of the pivotal and formative events that shaped you in the person that you are today. Wow. <laughs> pivotal events, goodness. Well, the brief, um, I was born in a little village in Scotland and I grew up on a small Scottish island called Shetland Islands. It's actually very far north. Uh, if you go up towards Norway, that's the direction uh, it is. And it's a selection of islands there. Oh, we have the little Shetland ponies. They come from there. Yeah, so I grew up there on the little Shetland Islands. Um, and I guess in terms of the podcast and my interest in things like meditation, etc., um, my upbringing uh, was, was quite uh, standard, I think. Uh, two main influences were uh, martial arts. From a very young age, five years old, I started attending karate class. And that was uh, quite a traditionally minded karate class. And we did a lot of standing with one arm out and, you know, for five minutes, which when you're five seems like, uh, just like in the movies, you know, just uh, facing the edge of your ability, you know, that kind of thing. And we did a lot of... Um, uh, things like uh, medit we did a bit of meditation actually also sort of kneeling uh, in Cesar they call it uh, we'd be spiring towards the end of a session which is sort of uh, mock fighting and of course you get very tired and knackered doing that and then suddenly the teacher would say Cesar and we'd kneel down and do various exercises to control our breathing when we were hungry for more oxygen we'd have to slow our breathing down and you know we did this sort of thing so of course I loved it and fell hook, line, and sinker for it, as young boys can do. So I, I fell in love with that and got really into martial arts and so on and read everything I could on it and practiced a lot and so on. And, of course, that sort of reading about martial arts, you know, you read, you read about karate, you end up reading about the do part of karate do, the way, and you end up reading about uh, Japanese culture, religion, etc. And then, then you're off into the whole uh, realm of uh, contemplative um, and mystical uh, subjects. So I was off in that direction. And also from around that same age, I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church. And so that was interesting too, because um, my mother had this uh, phrase that it was like a, uh, she'd say, it's a private faith, was the phrase she would say, private faith. So that meant when we attended the Mass, which is the ritual, the weekly ritual of the Catholic uh, religion, um, it wasn't in order to get together with people who believe the same thing to celebrate that we all believe the same thing. Or it wasn't to uh, play music um, with guitars and, and, and kind of like a concert. Actually, we went to the very early morning mass, but there was no music so that I could go to fencing later in the day, actually. But anyway, um, 
And it was, so it was very quiet. And what the altar boy does is you participate in this mass, and it's very choreographed. So you pick up a candle here, and you move it over there, and you take the cup from this place, and you bring it to the priest, and he does a thing, and then you take it away. So you're kind of an assistant in that, uh, but it's all very choreographed. And there are quite large periods of time where you're just sort of sitting at the back in, uh, in stillness or kneeling in some alcove or other, uh, waiting for your next bit of candle carrying, whatever it is. And I also love that. So we didn't get much indoctrination or any indoctrination, actually. My mother wouldn't let us go to the uh, Sunday school or the catechism, which is where the children go off into another room and uh, someone teaches them about, about the religion, etc. We We didn't do that. She said that much like the joke about politicians, if you want to be one, you probably shouldn't, that should be enough to disqualify you from being one. I think sort of echoing sort of Thucydides in a way. But um, so she didn't want us to go over there with the people who were volunteering to indoctrinate us. So we, we didn't, my brother and I. And it was mostly about the ritual and the silence and the, and the space. So that I think also uh, connected either with a kind of sense of, of, of the contemplative in me, or maybe even sparked it or, 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 or generated it, who knows. But I, I really love that as well. So I think these two early influences were quite key to uh, my eventually becoming interested in the sorts of things that, that led to the podcast. Yeah, it's fascinating. And um, I actually haven't heard a story of uh, such a mild Catholic upbringing. It's usually a lot more extreme and uh, and it seems like yours was more mild, and it seems like you got the positive things of of the tradition. Yes. I mean, I've had my run-ins with the negative sides of organized religion, too, as we, as, you know, we hear those stories, don't we? And certainly on my podcast, I've interviewed lots and lots of, you know, Zen priests, Tibetan lamas. I mean, but they're Americans or European uh, men and women who've, who've entered, you know, th those uh, orders, and many of them. Uh, grew up in a Catholic situation that uh, some of them weren't didn't have a bad time of it necessarily. Many of them did, but they all report a lack of something, a lack of the direct experience of contemplative uh, things. Uh, by contemplative here, I mean sort of you know meditationy kind of stuff, spiritual. I suppose people would say, right? Uh, a kind of a lack of contact with that, a lack of guidance or technique or or even a lack of acknowledging that reality or that, that aspect of human experience at all. In a church, of all things, you'd think that would be a place where one, one could discover at least a quiet personal connection to that sort of thing. But no, actually, often it's, it's sort of denied in, um, in many of those sorts of formal contexts, formal religious contexts. Um, and I've heard many of my guests lament that. Um, and I've asked them, actually, if you'd had that connection, do you think you would have become a Buddhist priest, a Zen priest, or do you think you would have ended up becoming a, you know, whatever it is, a Tibetan a Buddhist Lama, for example? Um, and I think that's an interesting thing to explore. So anyway, I was lucky in the sense that I had that um, apparatus of contemplative engagement available to me at that age, just purely because... I was very lucky with the priest was very deep guy. He didn't say to meditate, but that's what you do back there. And of course, I had the martial arts training and that, that was also rather more explicit about that sort of thing. So yeah, I was very lucky. You're right. And and what I, what I find that's interesting is even though you had kind of a positive experience with it, it seems that 
you've somehow gravitated more, at least it seems to me, into the Buddhist kind of stuff, more of the Eastern traditions. So I'm curious what it was that drew you to that. I actually, like, I have a friend who's Catholic and um, and my background is kind of Jewish. And he's like, well, why didn't, you know, and, and I would tell him that I'd be interested in Buddhism and stuff like that. And he's like, why didn't you get interested? Why don't you go and follow, you know, the Jewish tradition or explore that? And I was just, I don't know. I just kind of was, you know, interested in the Eastern. So I'm wondering what, how that came about and how that, why you didn't like pursue to go deeper into Christianity or Catholicism. Yeah, it is an interesting question. I think I went quite deep, actually, into it, certainly in later years. And I still, you know, when at that time, when I started reading, sparked by my martial arts uh, launching pad, if you like, um, I didn't really see much of a conflict. Of course, I understand that the religions are not compatible in many ways, doctrinally and et cetera. I understand that now. But at that time, I didn't see that as that difference as necessarily conflict more kind of diversity of flavors so i read all sorts of things and 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 found them didn't they didn't detract from each other um so in that sense i wouldn't say i'm more interested necessarily in the eastern paths uh, the eastern religions i'm just also very interested in them and there was this very fascinating article Oh, by the way, I should say there's a richness in the Western tradition too that's often unmined and overlooked. But there's um, an article, uh, or, uh, an essay written by Alan Watts, the famous um, you know, popularizer of, of Zen uh, and other things. Um, and it's called Beat Zen Square Zen. And he makes many points in that uh, essay. But one of the points he makes is that there's at that time when he wrote that article, Zen was very hip and very popular in the States, I think. So a lot of people were drawn to it, but he had observed that there were people drawn to it for kind of two different reasons. He categorized them, the beats and the squares, the beats. And this is kind of a play on the beat poets. They liked the idea of Zen as a kind of beyond categories, beyond rules, um, wild kind of uh, free for all of um, spontaneity, something like this. They, they, leaving their home traditions, found that that was very attractive to them. And the others, the squares, looked to the Zen tradition and saw the order, the outfits, the postures, the clean aesthetic, uh, the lines of the Zendo, etc. And were drawn to that structure. Uh, the squares, they found there a kind of rigor, perhaps, that had been lacking in their home tradition. The point being that these people were attracted to both of these flavors which are kind of different in a way, although perhaps Zen in, at its best brings them together, in reaction to what they were disliking, you could say, in their home tradition. He made the suggestion, or at least I read him to make the suggestion, that one, if one does not reconcile with one's home tradition, then in a sense, it's a little bit like they say in psychology, uh, that if you don't you know, reconcile with your parental issues, you're doomed to play them out to some degree in the partners you select as romantic partners. And I think it can be the case that there has to be, I think at some point, perhaps a reconciliation with one's home traditions. Um, otherwise, one ends up simply kicking the can down the road and playing out similar or reactive, similar patterns or reactive patterns in, in another context. But that's very hard to do. So, you know, when you, you think, oh, gosh, this other faith, this other way is so much better than the way that I came from. And um, it's a little bit 
like you say, you know, this lost relationship didn't work out, but wow, this new person is so shiny and cool and oh, they don't have any of the problems of the old one. And this is so great, you know. But of course you're of course they're they're not. They're they have all kinds of complexity to them as well that you don't know until you get to know them a bit better. But then often it's too late. And um you yourself are the same. <laughs> so there's an extent to which you make it you make it um you make it yours for better or worse. Um so yeah. Yeah, it's um it's awesome that you're able to actually look at so many different traditions and keep your mind expanded and not really collapse into one. But I do imagine that for those that did have a really negative experience, it would be difficult to, you know, go back into the church or go back into reading the Bible if they had like a negative experience growing up with a Catholic upbringing or something like that. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, yeah. Yeah, so um, there's actually so many pieces to you. Um, uh, your, st your story is very intriguing. You know, you have the martial arts and you have, you know, uh, growing up and being an altar boy and going to church. And there was others. There was a lot of things that I've read on your site about you. Um, but another intriguing aspect about you is your interest in extreme outdoor survival trainings. And um, you mentioned doing a seven day, no food, minimal equipment, advanced winter survival scenario an 11-day Arctic survival expedition in the forests of Sweden in daytime temperatures of negative 24 degrees Celsius. Can you speak about how you got into extreme outdoor survival and how these experiences have impacted you? Yeah, well, yeah, those were quite some adventures. I got into it, I think, because I recognized a deficiency in my understanding of, well, let's just say that area. Of course, I grew up in a rural place, so I was by no means an urban person, particularly. But I recognized that if something was to happen, or not even if something was to happen, I recognized that when I was out in nature, I didn't really know the first what was up and down in terms of survival. So we're talking survival here. We're not talking about, you know, carving a spoon and, you know, living comfortably in the nature, etc. That's another matter. It's sort of, sometimes they call that bushcraft, right? Living in nature. So I think that's a very amazing skill set too. But we're talking about survival. What, in what order do things kill you? What are, what uh, is the relationship between my, my body and my environment? And I learned as I began to uh, study this area and began to uh, train in this area with people who knew a lot about it, that a lot of the things I thought were wrong, or I'd never thought about them, actually. I recognized that some people only think about these things when they're in in trouble. <laughs> and I witnessed that a lot. So people would suddenly, in a situation like that, on a, on a controlled course, want to set up rabbit snares is the first thing. Because, you know, heaven forbid we miss a meal. Well, it turns out you can go a good month without eating and, you know, it's not likely to kill you, although you might, uh, you might lose a little bit of weight that way. It's not advised. But you can actually survive quite a bit longer without food than you might think. Uh, water, on the other hand, yeah, you're going to need some water in three or four days or you're going to be in really big trouble. Uh, but on the other hand, how can you purify your water without fire? And on the other hand, if you... If it's raining and you get cold, you can die of hypothermia in, say, three or four days. 
So maybe three or four weeks without food, perhaps longer, three or four days without water, three or four hours if you're hypothermia, if you have hypothermia. So that's interesting. So that changes the order that you must proceed. Um, it's a reality check as to the order you must proceed. You, you get an understanding of yourself, of the body, of one's organism, and also of one's environment. So I find that to be very interesting. Of course, the other thing that I think everyone would automatically assume, and it's true actually, is that you face your own, uh, it's a test of psychological metal also, and emotional fortitude. It's a, some of these things can be a test of that. Just the discomfort uh, in some of the most basic trainings that I attended at the very beginning, just simply the discomfort of being outside. I mean, I like to be outside, but it's, it's, con it's the context. When you're in a kind of situation where you know they're training you to survive and all this sort of stuff, it's kind of uncomfortable and you don't have the stuff you'd like and it's, you know, you're not in control of what's happening next. It's, no, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Can be a little uncomfortable. I'm talking about very early, and then of course it becomes much more uncomfortable later on. But that that discomfort is uh, clarifying, and uh, actually, in some ways, purifying. In some ways, so I found that to be the case. So I love the uh, skills, um, the understanding, and then of course from that comes appreciation of one's body and of nature and of the environment. There's an appreciation that comes after you get, you know, when you get past the sort of suffering stage, <laughs> as well as the, uh, the test of one's, um, you know, the reset and of one's comfort levels, the test of one's mental strength, you know, voluntarily exposing oneself to discomfort like that uh, in a safe way, of course, is uh, I think very beneficial. So I learned a lot of, I learned a lot of things uh, from that. Yeah. Teamwork, you learn about teamwork, you learn about leadership, you learn about group dynamics, and you learn about human psychology, what makes people break, what they look like when they're going to break, what kind of decisions they make and actions they take before they break or quit, and that sort of thing. How to rally a group, how to get things done in a group when people are diminishing in their capacities with every day. So this, all these sorts of things, you know, what do you like in those situations? What do you like in a leadership contest? What, when you're either contesting for it because you need to rest it off of somebody because they're not, it's going badly wrong, or perhaps you're being challenged or this sort of thing. So how do you deal in those situations? What do you like when you haven't eaten for three days and, you, and you're fantasizing as I was um, about going back to the you know, the pub hotel that I'd stayed in the night before the course began, you know, the state sort of, you stayed a place before you go out there, you know, I stayed in the sort of pub hotel. Oh, I was fantasizing about going back as I was collecting firewood through day three. I was collecting firewood and just thinking about exactly what I would do. And I imagined going back to that pub, I would quit and go back to that pub and stay in that pub uh, hotel. And I would not be able to tell anyone, of course, that I'd done that. And I'd have to just hide out there for a few days and I could just cuddle under the covers and be all nice and comfortable. Of course, I could never come back to these people again who were training me. I'd, you know, I'd have to be discerned on grata there. I could never show my face. The shame would be unbearable and so on. Sort of imagine it. And I basically went to the pub. In Every part of me went to that, that pub hotel, except my physical body, which didn't, of course, go. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's uh, so it's great fun to explore those kinds of, well, explore maybe is the wrong word, to uh, endure <laughs> those kinds of limits um, of oneself. Yeah. 
Yeah, to just see what 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 your mind does or how it or how it changes, how your consciousness changes. I've never done um, like the extreme survival stuff, but I, I did um, not too long ago. I did a five day fast, and oh, yeah. and my mind was just I was on. I was somehow on YouTube watching food videos. I have no clue. How, it just automatically happened. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I do, I do like the the cold exposure stuff, like twenty minute ice baths, and and that stuff mm. is, yeah, it does something to me. Like it really opens my heart up, and um, it, it takes my mind somewhere else, and it makes me really grateful. And um, right now, it's getting. I'm, I'm in New York, so it's getting cold. So I usually do this stuff when it gets colder because otherwise the ice melts really quick and you gotta so i'm about to start the season up the sauna ice bath season um so it's 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 definitely it's interesting to see what happens with the mind when you put yourself through these type of things whether it's cold whether it's uh food deprivation and you know just being disoriented being lost being somewhere in the wilderness and um i actually i'm curious if you ever read this book it's called deep survival yes i have yeah, by Lawrence Gonzalez. And I think one of the things that he speaks about there is how a big part of survival is about like beginner's mind. And I think he, he says that the people that are most likely to survive are actually like kids underneath under the age of seven. And the, the people that are least likely to survive are kids that are over seven, like in, in that group, because by that point, they already have these kind of mental models and representations of the world. So they can't see the world in a fresh way. And a big part of survival is just being very fresh, very in the moment. And that kind of relates back to meditation. So I can see how there's also that element that intertwines with it. Yes. And it relates to meditation also because, you know, you could really put your practice to the test there. Or, you know, if you think you have a degree of, say, attainment, uh, for example, or realization, um, as many of my guests on the podcast claim claim to have, uh, those kinds of situations are, I think, excellent clarifiers or sharpeners of that attainment if if it's if it's there, or just showing you where perhaps um, there's more work to be done, or if you're a practitioner in general, uh, just to you know place place oneself in that kind of a context. It's it's very good for the practice. A lot of my teachers have, um, a few of my, uh, yeah, s- several of my teachers have emphasized that kind of training. I mean, not going out and doing that those exact courses, but kind of training where one sits in meditation longer maybe than is comfortable or uh, this sort of thing. Um, to see what one's, you know, what one's made of essentially and to test one's practice against. This is like weightlifting, isn't it? Or strength training. You get to a certain level of strength, uh, you've got to lift, put more weight on. Yeah, so... Are there any other extreme survival journeys that you're planning for the future? Is there any specific programs or things that you want to do? Perhaps I'll, I'll quote one of my teachers, actually. Uh, that's, I'll answer that question, but perhaps I'll quote one of my teachers, uh, Shinzen Young. He's been one, my main meditation teacher for the last 10 years or more. And he says, if you don't go to the monastery, the monastery will come to you. And maybe the monastery will come to you even if you do go, which means it's to do with voluntarily exposing oneself to um, you know, what's inside or, you know, to suffering, to hardship. Uh, and then when it comes to you, you know, because we don't ever wish it to come to you, do you? I mean, it's okay one thing to go there and experience it, but I, for instance, I don't mind going on these sorts of, these sorts of uh, experiences and uh, courses, but I would, I would hate to be in an actual survival situation. I would not want that to happen, a real one, you know. But if it did, I'd say, well, I've been here before. 
And of course, the chances of me getting into a physical survival situation like that are extremely low. But what about the chances of me entering the same degree of suffering or discomfort that I experienced there? I'd say pretty high, if not inevitable. Illness, uh, you know, impending death, uh, difficulty in life, stress, disappointment, failure, persecution, <laughs> whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All sorts of things can happen, can't they? And we experience, this, and there's no news to anybody, those things. So to have, to have gone to some of those places with one's practice, it's, it's, um, it's good. Then you know when it comes, you're like, oh, yeah, I've been here before. I know that I have uh, some experience. I know some of the landmarks here of myself. Uh, what am I doing? In, for, well, actually, I wanted to go to um, do some jungle, deep jungle survival. I have not done that before. Uh, there's a, a place in Guyana that does that. An ex-British um, military guy runs a course down there in Guyana for uh, deep uh, jungle survival. I think it's a two-week thing. I'd really like to do that. I was, excuse me, I was planning to do it, but then, you know, pandemic came and all that sort of thing, and such trips are, are were not possible. But that's something I'd, I'd very much like to do, deep jungle. I'd also quite like to do desert. Um, those are the three extreme environments, desert, jungle, and Arctic. Of course, I've done Arctic, and uh, I would, of course, like to return to the Arctic. I fell in love with, with the Arctic and the cold and the snow and the whole um, dynamic of that, that place. So I'd be very keen to, to return there. Uh, yes, more of any of it, really. I'll sign up. Yeah, I think I'd be down for the Arctic. I don't know about the, the jungle with all the mosquitoes or, or like the desert. That that somehow I kind of fell in love with the cold. So it somehow the Arctic sounds more appealing. But I can imagine there's a lot of suffering to go around in e either of those three scenarios. Yeah, there's a lot of suffering, yeah. And there's a lot of beauty as well. A lot of beauty, a lot of appreciation. It's not all horrible. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful too. Um, there are many things that are wonderful about it. But uh, yeah, at times there are low points. There will be low points. There will be psychologically challenging parts. Um, yeah, that's the case. So it's the case with almost anything worth doing. Yeah, so it, it's interesting. You know, you're, you're, you mentioned the Shenzhen Young quote of uh, you go to the monastery, the monastery comes to you. And to me, that's like, uh, you know, you, you find the dragon in its lair and you kill the dragon or the dragon's going to come after you. And um, yeah, it seems like some, it seems to me like some people are more predisposed to that kind of mentality of like, I don't want to wait around. Like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to wait, wait around for the bully. Like, I'm just going to confront the bully or I'm just going to confront these things because I don't want to, this weighing on my conscience. So I don't want to have to face this later. Um, what, what do you think it is that, you know, some people end up kind of embracing that and, and, and going to the dragon's lair or, or going to the monastery? And other people don't do that. I don't know what that is. I, I, I would like to imagine it's some degree of nature and nurture. Something to do with one's personality, uh, you know, the sort of raw materials one comes in with. And then I would imagine a degree to it a degree of it is is also in the nurture too, in the sort of influences one is exposed to, the sort of um, enculturation one has, the kinds of books one reads or perhaps even films one watches, that sort of thing. Um, I would guess, though, that, yeah, so I think that I, I would suppose probably the nature is the stronger part than the nurture, though, I would guess. Really? Hmm. Uh, maybe not. Yeah. I'm, uh, <laughs> 
that's a paradox we're going to be playing with till the end of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, you're exactly right about that. Who knows the answer to that? Not me, that's for sure. Yeah, I just, I find it fascinating because, I mean, it's like everybody wants to be comfortable. Like we want to be comfortable, right? We don't want to deal with suffering and pain. Um, but I, I think I have a similar mentality, like what I'm hearing you say with what you were sharing about the winter survival. It's just like, there's something there that, and even with meditation, like, I think um, there's like a quote, like, if you die before you die, then you don't have to die when you die. And it's like that that whole path somehow, it's like coming to face your fears. It's coming to face really the ultimate fear, the fear of your death. Um, and looking at that and somehow seeing through that or going beyond that. Um, it, and that, you know, to me, that's what liberation is, really. It's like when you don't have no more that kind of uh, survival anxiety. And like that's what motivates me to practice. That's what motivates me to get uncomfortable and to face these kind of things. Um, but yeah, it seems like for some reason that doesn't happen to everybody or like, I don't know if it's like you have to get to that point or something has to happen where there's like a flip or a shift. Um, or if it's just, you know, a personality thing, I have no clue. Yeah, I, I certainly think it can be encouraged in people. Confidence. Uh, confidence born from facing challenge. And sometimes one needs encouragement. Uh, I think a good teacher does that. A, te a good teacher of anything builds, you know, not only knowledge, but also maybe even um, passion about learning itself or the confidence to be able to go from not knowing to knowing. That's quite a chasm, actually. Uh, you know, not knowing something, learning is itself. You know, another Shinzen quote that I like is the body wants to be comfortable, the mind wants answers. These are two things. So to learn, to really learn, uh, one has to become willing to marinate in ignorance to an extent. Because when you try, first try to learn something, you, you can't learn it. I mean, I, I sometimes think of a bodybuilder, right? They go to the gym and a bodybuilder attempts to gain strength in the gym or muscle, get bigger muscles and so on. So in order to do that, if a bodybuilder wants to feel strong all the time, then they will not get much stronger. Bodybuilder has to be willing to basically become a connoisseur of weakness, to be able to push the body into weakness towards its failure point, not too much, otherwise injury will be the result, but not too little, otherwise the adaptation will not occur. So bodybuilder ends up having to become a connoisseur of weakness and has to hang out in that zone quite a bit. Similarly, if you want to learn something, uh, you have to be willing to feel ignorant because ignorance is the state that precedes knowledge <laughs> and maybe even proceeds it, <laughs> you know? It's like learning a language or anything else. Uh, uh, it's, uh, first of all, one's faced with the shocking experience of not knowing the thing. And uh, sometimes enthusiasm can carry you over that chasm. Enthusiasm, fascination, curiosity, you know, you kind of carry over that chasm. Um, but anyway, more or less, I think it's very easy for, uh, in terms of learning, to become very comfortable with what we already know and to be, and then become less and less accustomed to being outside of our knowledge base, our knowledge castle. And so then when we're outside of that, and we're in a, perhaps a good learning situation, it feels wrong. It's like, no, this isn't right. I know things. You know, I'm a person. I know things. I have expertise. I have status, you know. This is not... 
supposed to feel this way. Life isn't supposed to feel this way. I'm going to go back to the, my own domain of knowledge and status. So I think that one has to sort of constantly wrestle with that. Um, what would it be? Entropy. Everything falling apart. Or that if you don't expose yourself to stress or discomfort of physical or intellectual type, you will atrophy. That's what I mean by entropy. You can't stand still. You're either going forward or back. And forward means, it does mean resistance, experiencing some sort of resistance, whether that's the resistance of the barbell or the resistance of the, uh, the verb conjugation chart, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. And you, again, you mentioned Shenzhen Yang. Yeah, the body wants to be comfortable. The mind wants answers. And that's, that's how the mind is comfortable when it knows, when it knows what's going on. And um, I've experienced this, this kind of, um, I, you know, I, I think I, at one point I'm like, I think I have an addiction to knowledge or something. Like I have an addiction to knowing, like I'm always reading, reading stuff. Um, and I think several years ago during an ayahuasca uh, journey, it was literally like the message for me was just like learning to let go of trying to make sense of things because it, it literally plummeted me into this kind of space of where everything did, nothing made sense. It was completely, it was like a madhouse, chaotic, like sounds, vibrations, weird things, nothing made sense. Everything was disorienting for like four hours. And it was, it was just like, it, it just, tapped me out it was my mind kept wanting to be in that comfortable place of knowing and understanding and it was here i was like in pure chaos um so so I, I definitely resonate with that part of like like wanting the mind wanting comfort in knowing and then being in that kind of uncertainty and i'm actually curious um if you've ever used psychedelics um and if they if you have have they had a significant impact on your spiritual growth or your meditation practice? Because um, I don't think I've ever heard you speak about that. Yeah. Well, sadly, they're illegal here in the U in the UK. Actually, uh, some years ago, and I may be remembering this correctly or incorrectly, but I think this is right. They passed a law because you know what happens in um, in these sorts of laws. You can ban a substance, but let's say LSD. And then a chemist will just add another molecule to the LSD, which is an inert molecule. And then you can take the, you know, this uh, variation, and it's basically the same as taking LSD because this other molecule doesn't do anything. But it's not LSD, so you can't ban it. It's not illegal until they catch up with the variations and this sort of thing. So what they did in the UK to, to get ahead of this is they said, okay, we're going to ban all psychoactive substances. All, I think this happened about 2016. I could be wrong. Um, that's in my mind for some reason, because I remember finding this story very funny. And what they then realized was that that included all foods, <laughs> coffee, you know, everything has, technically speaking, uh, you know, consciousness altering, mood altering, uh, some, some sort of, you know, perspective, right? And so then they had to re uh, rewrite the law somehow, and it, it was delayed by two or three months to exclude things like, you know, coffee and I guess, cigarettes and chocolate and stuff like that. You know, it's very funny. So, yeah, it's not something that's... Uh, and It's not like the States where I think things are becoming more and more legalized there, right? Uh, 
like uh, marijuana is legal uh, uh, in a lot of places. And now I hear even Colorado, they made um, psilocybin. Yeah. Isn't it? So it's legal for certain things in certain contexts. And, and so Portland, so Portland also, I think. Yeah. I, I can just imagine you, though, being somewhere in in, uh, in Scotland and just like peeling, you know, uh, plucking the mushrooms off the ground and just eating them. <laughs> I could see you doing that. Yeah, of course, people do do that. I've never done that myself. No, I've never gone mushroom, yeah. mushroom yeah. hunting. I, it, it is a cool image, though. I agree. Kind of something kind of uh, Tolkien-esque about that. I'm not suggesting he was into that, but so, you know, I can imagine. If I was to do that, I'd definitely dress up kind of Gandalf style. I, I also don't take you uh, to be like a like a hyper law abiding citizen. I kind of feel like you're like a rebel. So I'm kind of surprised that that was your answer is like, oh, they're just they're illegal here. So, you know, I can't get any or I can't use them or something like that. Yeah, am I, am I a rebel? I'm not sure if I'm a rebel. I'm not a really I'm not necessarily a rebel against the law. <laughs> yeah. You know, all I can that's all I can say. No. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, uh, I'm pretty law abiding actually, as far as these things go. Yeah. My, uh, the frontiers I'm interested in are not necessarily, um, uh, yeah, I just, I try to keep my, uh, keep my nose clean when it comes to the law. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. I got you. Um, you, you have extensive experience um, training in somatic practices such as Qigong and yoga. I'm curious, is there a specific practice, routine, program that you found was most effective in either healing something physical in your body or opening up your energy flow? Mm. Perhaps I'll add one thing to what I said previously, which is I think it came to my mind moments after I'd stopped talking, which is that, you know, I mostly want to be sort of left alone, if, if you know what I mean, to sort of get on with the things that I'm interested in doing. And I think that's one of the reasons why I avoid uh, breaking the law if I can possibly help it, because uh, it's a good way of, um, you know, like, it does not conducive with being left alone, <laughs> I think. You know? yeah. But anyway, um, what are the... Um, but I do admire the psychonauts. I do admire them. Um, but anyway, uh, what are the uh, things that have opened up my body? Gosh. Actually, yeah, I've done a lot of those things. But one thing that not a lot of people know really a lot about is something called Grinberg Method. G-R-I-N-B-E-R-G. Hmm. It's a method invented by a guy called Avi Grinberg. Yeah, I've seen that. But But please speak more about that. Yeah. Yeah, I find that to be quite profound. And uh, it's not something you do to yourself. You have it done to you by a Grimberg practitioner. And uh, it's specialized in all kinds of things, working with trauma, yes, but also working with pain, physical pain that's come about through, say, surgery, uh, you know, you know chronic, chronic pain that's come from surgery or other kind of injuries. In specific, dealing with one's relationship to pain, Avi Grimberg was a, a Zen guy. He was a massage therapist and a Zen guy. And he, so there's a lot of this sort of uh, interdisciplinary ideas that go into this Grimberg. But um, he found that he was working on people, working on their bodies, massaging them and, you know, putting them back together and so on. But then they kept coming back 
they kept coming back. The pain kept coming back. He couldn't fix it in any kind of, and he, he found this to be rather unsatisfactory. So he came up with, um, he started exploring uh, this problem. And so the sorts of things they do in Greenberg is you face your relationship to pain, the way in which one holds on to pain, the way in which one is frozen into certain coping responses to pain or discomfort. So there are many different ways you can cope with challenges or threats or difficult things, pains, etc. And each of these coping mechanisms is perhaps quite reasonable and good. But we can, we can sometimes get stuck into one particular way of relating to the pain. So, for instance, one way of getting stuck, one might get stuck into a kind of endurance mode turtling you know turtling down and just enduring it waiting it out actually that's a great strategy but if it's your only strategy or it should a fault strategy or you're somehow stuck in that posture that way of being um because perhaps it was it was successful at one point or you just don't know any other way uh, then it can sometimes be a contributing part of the problem so one of the things they do in grimberg and it's mostly to do with where you work with the body body work and breathing and so on they show you how to uh, respond differently, how to take different different uh, responses. I, I've seen um, some of the videos of uh, Avi Greenberg doing the stuff. I, I don't remember exactly what it was. It might have been like somebody holding like a, like a wall sit for a long time or like holding some kind of painful. So I remember it had to do something with pain. Um, but that's definitely something interesting that I would like to look into more. Um, you've also created something called the movement cone method. Can you speak on this? And in particular, maybe the cutting edge neuroplasticity techniques that that's mm -hmm. very fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that movement cone method. Yeah. I've got two DVD downloads on, on my site, grooveviking.com about that. And it's, if we, the two words are movement and koan, right? So it's joint nourishing movement and, uh, of various kinds and also kind of movements like cross body movement, um, one arm forward, one arm back, that sort of thing. And uh, using uh, uh, movement patterns that uh, cross the body in, in interesting ways, that's part of the neuroplasticity aspect that you were pointing to. And the koan part, a koan is a Zen training technique. Some people call it kind of a Zen riddle. Um, that's one way of looking at it. Maybe I think a low, um, a low resolution way of describing it. But your Zen teacher might ask you something like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Or does a dog have Buddha nature? This sort of thing. And it's actually a meditation technique. You contemplate the, this, uh, this koan, this riddle, or this um, question, or this problem that the teacher gives you. And then you, you, you return to the teacher, and you're supposed to give your response. And this is sort of a method of training that's done in Zen. Um, it's not entirely a intellectual exercise, actually. I think one is supposed to go beyond the intellect in, in, in a way with these koans. But anyway, so it's a means of inquiry, lens of inquiry. So in terms of a movement koan, we use the body as the means or the venue of inquiry, setting up, um, if you want, riddles in the body or asking questions with the body and using that as a venue of exploration. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the things we do is stand on one leg and swing the other leg kind of casually back and forth. And then I'll ask the person to, as much as they can while still remaining standing, relax the base leg. How relaxed can you make the base leg while still remaining standing? Minimum necessary muscular activation. 
minimum possible muscular activation, you'd be totally relaxed on the ground. But minimum necessary muscular activation, necessary for what? For standing. And then what happens is you start to question those layers of tension that you're using. Uh, and then a few things become apparent. So that's, if you want, setting the stage, right? That's kind of, that's kind of the, the koan, if you like. And then people notice all sorts of interesting things. Uh, I'll give you two examples. One of them is when you start to relax that base leg that you're balancing on and swinging the other leg forward and back, the, the feeling of the muscular fatigue spikes. Somehow relaxing that base leg, you, you feel more of the muscular fatigue. And that's because we don't only use tension for the action. It's, it looks like it's for. We also use it as an anesthesia. Anesthesia as a bracing against feeling. And so when we relax that layer of tension or bracing, of course, you feel what's underneath. Of course, using muscular tension to brace against feeling the product of muscular tension, which is muscular fatigue, is not a great long-term strategy. But nonetheless, we do it. Another thing we might discover is that another use of tension that's not just standing is a kind of anticipation of the future, a bracing in anticipation of future balancing needs. How long are you going to be standing? We're standing on one leg over a period of time, it seems. So we have to, in a certain sense, the body can sometimes brace in anticipation of future balance needs. But actually, you can't balance really over a period of time. Oh, and of course, on one level you can, but on another level you can't. All you can do is balance now. And if you're balanced now, then you'll be balanced now. If you try to balance across time, you'll, you will be unable to do it. You'll be balancing now, and you'll also be doing something else, some sort of bracing or anticipation or imagining or et cetera, et cetera. So this is um, another... So both of those things I've said, tension is anesthesia, which can sometimes contribute, actually, to what's underneath, and, and this idea of bracing into the future balancing needs are ripe, if you want, channels of insight. It's true also meditation, we notice that, right, that a lot of the discomfort and distress we, we might experience meditating, when you're meditating, is to do with imagining a future that hasn't happened yet, or, you know, thinking ahead into the future, or perhaps thinking back into the past. So there's a kind of sense in which actually you're fine as you are right there. You're actually fine. But of course, what's going to happen in half an hour? What's going to happen in two weeks? What's going to happen in two years? Well, who knows? But all kinds of things might happen. And there's a place for looking ahead. There's a place for planning and preparing and all that sort of thing. But there's also a way in which we can confuse or lose sight of what's actually happening now and end up torturing ourselves in a way um, by looking ahead into the into the future in a helpful way. This was driven home to me. On I, I was very ill at one point. And I was in the hospital and they gave me all sorts of um, drugs to, to uh, try to help me. And uh, it, it was a physical illness that I had and they didn't know what it was. So they were throwing all, everything at me uh, to, to try to save my life. I was quite close to death and in a lot of discomfort. And all this, this cocktail of drugs sort of soaked into me somehow and uh, produced this tremendous despair. I had this terrible sense of despair and it was sort of soaking every part of my mind. I noticed it was when they injected a particular anti-nausea drug, which they had to give me to try and keep down all the other things they were giving me. There was a, a terrible despair that would come for the next sort of four to six hours. Anyway, 
it even infected those parts of my mind that reframe a challenging situation. So I don't know if you do this, but sometimes if I'm going through a difficult time or a difficult situation, I'll say to myself, well, it could be worse. And I'll try to think of something that could be worse than what I'm having. And, you know, there are a lot of things often that I can imagine in that situation. I think of other places in the world, other people, other situations that are worse. And I think, gosh, you know, I guess it's not so bad after all. Try to reframe, right? Even my reframing apparatus in my mind seemed to be soaked with despair. I couldn't get it off the ground. So I, it, was, it became very intense. And bear in mind, I was also quite close to um, uh, dying as well, which tends to heighten things a bit. And it was unbearable. And I recognized that, that or rather what happened, then there was this sort of squeezing of, I was squeezed from both sides. When I thought about the past, about how things were much better in the past when I wasn't in hospital, almost dying, it became unbearable. I couldn't even add that extra load of you know, yearning for the past. And when I thought of the future and wondering, will I ever get better? What's going to happen next? Because there was a great deal of confusion at that time. They didn't know what was going on. Looking at what's going to happen to me? Will I ever be well again? Oh, this sort of, that, those two activities were adding so much strain to the situation that I couldn't sustain them. And because of the intensity of the situation, I was kind of squeezed by nature into the present moment, if you like. And this mantra came in my mind, a kind of spontaneous, repetitive phrase came in my mind, which is, now I'm okay. Now I'm okay. Which wasn't a comforting thing, like saying, you're okay, you're okay. It was a recognition that actually at that, at that moment, I was fine. I couldn't stand it another second. I couldn't stand it for five more seconds. I couldn't, I, I couldn't bear it for five more seconds, but I could bear it now. I could bear it now, right now, right now, right now is fine. And I recognized I was actually completely fine in, in all of that discomfort. Right now, I was fine, right now. Was fine. Of course, and that right now, you know, went on for a long time. But the point is, as I pointed out with the balancing exercise, that um, all I could handle uh, was, was right then and there. And there was this sense of um, kind of unification of my observer with the observed, a little bit like an oscilloscope with two uh, waves in the oscilloscope coming into a kind of uh, uh, consonance with each other. And there was a sort of a subject-object kind of a merging that occurred at that time, um, uh, which took away all the uh, suffering. <laughs> And I sort of squeezed into it, you know. It's a little bit like I, I watched your video about your um, 5-MeO DMT, uh, your transformative experiences you had with that. And, um, you know, it, it reminds me a bit of that because I suppose your 5-MeO DMT experience, uh, once you'd taken that, you had to, it was, you, it was nature in charge, right? You were squeezed by nature into this transformative experience that you had. Well, this was a bit similar, except it wasn't um, psychedelic. It was sort of, being very, very close to death and so on. So I had a lot of strange experiences around that time um, uh, because I was close to death for quite some time and had a lot of very, very strange experiences. That's one of them. It's sort of relevant to movement kind method. So we look at different things in the body, uh, playful, easy, joint nourishing, body nourishing movements with a twist. And that twist is this investigative or questioning aspect. And I find that if you can learn something in the body, you have an experience in the body, it very easily percolates up to the mind. Sometimes it's hard. You can learn a concept or an idea, but without an embodied 
sense of having experienced it, uh, then it can be hard to apply or to recognize, or one's still interpreting that lesson or context or concept through one's current position. But a learning of the body uh, has a different kind of effect. So when we learn in the body like that, uh, the things we learn, the principles we learn, it seems, seem to bubble from the bottom up. Um, and then you can recognize all these different applications of things you learn. So that's the sort of thing that uh, Movement Calm is about. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I asked that question because so much came out. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of just the fascinating about the actual practice and, you know, how actually releasing tension, you start to feel more fatigue. Like that's very counterintuitive. I wouldn't have expected that. So that's a very interesting element. And I was just kind, kind of trying to feel into what you were saying with the practice. And I can see how like there's all this sensitivity in the body and all these things that happen when we do certain physical activities and there's all this tension that obscures us from that sensitivity or protects us from feeling our bodies and feeling life more. And it's the same thing. And then you related it back to meditation, uh, which is also interesting. And and then I was really kind of struck by, you know, your story about being close to death. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm curious how long ago this was because uh, this seems like it, it's a pivotal event. And then it also seems like maybe that was kind of an awakening experience. That's what I'm getting from what you're saying with kind of just the su subject and the object merging. Um, um, it was, a, it was a, a moment of learning, I would say. I wouldn't say it's a, it wasn't a moment of awakening. It was a, mo a moment of learning, uh, learning quite deeply. And because it was quite protracted, um, it went on for some time. It was a, a learning that had some time to, <laughs> you know, bed in, I suppose. Or so. But actually, the more profound experience at that time happened before that. So I would, uh, seeing as you're asking about pivotal moments, I suppose, I, should I tell the story? Sure, please do. Well, I, um, um, to cut a long story short, I had internal bleeding uh, that due to uh, something I was born with, a genetic, I won't say defect, because it's 2022. Can I say variation? <laughs> a, de a, a, a special defect. I was special, Artem. But anyway, the specialness that I had, my particular specialness, was, um, so I'm cutting now to the chase. There's a longer way I could tell the story but when I didn't know what it was and all this sort of thing, but uh, never mind that. So I hadn't any problems with this up until this moment, my intestines had a cul-de-sac of stomach tissue. I've been born that way. So sort of normal intestine, then sort of cul-de-sac of stomach tissue. And of course, stomach tissue should be in the stomach. It shouldn't be this little cul-de-sac um, coming off, or a little pouch, I suppose, coming off of your intestine. So anyway, usually they catch it when you're a kid. It's called Meckel's diverticulum. And so uh, one day... A little over 10 years ago, to answer your question, your other question, it switched on as stomach tissue and started to produce stomach acid. And that stomach acid, of course, in the stomach is okay, but in the intestines, it's not so good. So it, it uh, created an internal bleeding in my, in my intestines, right? No pain, though. No pain from that. And I started to... Uh, should we say void massive amounts of blood, right? But black tar, the actual 
um, pouch was quite high up in my intestinal tract. So when you bleed internally from low down, it, it, it looks like blood is red. But when you bleed from higher up in your gastrointestinal tract, it comes out kind of black. And it's a substance called melina. And it, because it's been somewhat partially digested on the way down, right? Anyway, and it smells really bad. I'll tell you that. Anyway, so all this started coming out. Um, I went to the doctor and they said, oh, did you eat a lot of licorice and all this sort of thing? So I went to this whole thing. So it took me about 10 days to get, or seven or eight days to get to the hospital because this doctor was kind of telling me I was fine. All this while, what happens when you lose a lot of blood is you lose also red blood cells and red blood cells are what transport the oxygen uh, from your you know, lungs, I guess, to the cells, right, of your body. So if you lose a lot of blood like that, you can't get the oxygen that you're breathing in to oxygenate the body. It can't get transported in that, in that way. So I started suffocating, but on a sort of cellular level. I could still breathe, but it wasn't, you know, trans oxygenating the body very well. So I started, I became very weak and there was still bleeding going on and I became very weak. And, you know, I, my friends had to carry me up the stairs in my apartment, you know, this sort of thing. It was, it was uh, really uh, interesting. Towards the end, I said to myself, okay, if I can get to the toilet, go to the bathroom and come back again, I was in my bed, then, which was about, I don't know, like 15, 20 feet maybe, then I will wait till the morning to go to the hospital because I was getting worse and worse. If I can't, then I'll, I'll go to the hospital, like the ER. And so I tried to lift my head up off the pillow and it fell back. I had got to the point at that then where I couldn't even get out of bed. Previously, in order to get to the bathroom, I had to take one or two stops. But now, I couldn't even lift my head. So my brother, who I lived with at the time, we shared an apartment in London, called the ambulance. And they came. It took me to the ER. We call it the A&E, but it's the ER. And uh, they were rushed. I was rushed in there. And I went, look, rushed in, the nurse looked at me and suddenly everything came alive and I was taken to the, there's different degrees of ER, right? Depending on how badly uh, messed up you are. I went to the serious one, right? And I went to the one where suddenly, it's great actually, you get to go to the front of the queue and everyone is you know, looking after you and trying to, you know, but anyway, it's not good because the reason you're there is very bad, of course. So I was there and they said, we're going to have to do an emergency blood transfusion, all this sort of stuff. And they said, um, So if you, you should have about 12 to uh, 14 to 16, I think, um, red blood cell count uh, as an adult male. People start dying around uh, seven. I was down to four. My heart was maxed out. Max BPM. There is apparently a BPM. Your heart can go. That's sort of its max. My heart was at the max. And I had been at the max for a while. I was very fit at that time. Um, and younger. And, and more handsome, sadly. But anyway, never mind. That's age for you. And uh, so I'd, I'd managed to survive. And up till then, my brother left the booth, you know, the little booth you're in in the ER, to call my parents to tell them what was happening. And the doctor said, don't go. He's probably not going to make it. So I heard that. And when I heard that, it was like someone pulled the plug on one of those old TVs, you know, those old cathode ray tube TVs where you turn them off and they go Boo, to a white dot. And everything went to like switched off. And then I saw before me kind of like a rip, like someone's riffling a deck of cards, my life go by 
And I had this sense of completeness and perfection. Not that I'd done everything perfectly right, but that everything had to have gone the way it went. So that was the sense of the feeling, right? So this sort of symbol, it was literally like someone was riffling from, si- from one side to the other. My life, right, right, right there. And then I saw a kind of Zen painting, you know, those Zen things where they, they do sort of calligraphy in a very kind of Zen way, right? Uh, the way they do it is sort of expression of their Zenness, I suppose. I saw a Zen brush just paint a diagonal line down, and it had that sense of spontaneity as well. So this is a sense of perfection, but then also a sense of spontaneity. Uh, anyway, I could go into that, but that, that's enough for now, I think. And then my body, I felt my body again. And I experienced my body, and I experienced the body's will to live. I experienced that the body would, I had the sense that the body was a sort of series of interconnecting patterns in a sense that had its own uh, momentum. And that when that momentum was over, the patterns would sort of, you know, the, the, str- the strands of the, of the rope of the body's being would sort of dissipate lose their coherence, dissipate into, you know, as elements do when you die, I guess, you know, in, into other things. And I recognize then, I said, ah, my, that's the will to live. The body's going to keep living until it can't live anymore. It's like a candle. A candle, when you light a candle, it burns all the way down. It doesn't look at the bottom and go, uh-oh, almost out of wax, I better burn more slowly. And when you burn a candle, it goes all the way down, unless you blow it out, all the way down, all the way. Full commitment, you could say. So I experienced that. And then my mind came back on, or my sort of personality, if you like, came back on. And I experienced also the mind um, as momentum as well. And then my mind was going to keep going until it ran out of momentum, until it ran out of momentum, yeah. And it would also sort of unravel at the end there. And then I recognized that I was going to, so I I kind of let the mind and body, well, I think a lot of people give up um, when they're faced with death or something like that, because in a sense, we're afraid to really try to to survive in case we can't. There's almost a sense in which we can't quite face the situation. And it's possible, because to face the situation means to acknowledge its possible outcome, which, as you pointed out earlier, is death, right? So in a way, we, in refusing, we won't even rise to it, you know? Anyway, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to let my mind and my body, I mean, I, I didn't think this exactly, but this this was, I'm trying to put uh, words on uh, on the position that I arrived at, which was that I'm going to let, you know, my mind and my body are just going to keep doing what they do until they die. And if they die, that's fine. It wasn't didn't seem like it was a big problem. But at the same time, I wasn't going to die a moment earlier than I had run out of momentum in those structures. I wasn't going to die a moment earlier than there was nothing left to wring out of it. That was the sense. That's what the will to live. That's what the will to live feels like um, when it's not inhibited by an, an unwillingness to face death. Basically, the possibility of death. You know. Anyway. So then, uh, then suddenly my eyes came back online. You know, I could see suddenly what was going on. I looked around. 
and looked at the curtains, you know, the, in the floor and so on they have. And the curtains in the floor were me. <laughs> in the sense that the thing that, you know, uh, that was watching the mind and watching the body and all this sort of thing, it's not exactly quite right, but the, the division between inside, outside, etc., was gone. So it was like it was me. The floors were me, um, or or I was, or at least they weren't not me. Something like this. It's hard to, perhaps hard to. Maybe I'm describing it poorly. So that was quite profound, and really rather life changing. I would say. Anyway, and then it was in the aftermath of that when they started to give me these transfusions. And they didn't know why I was losing a lot of blood. They thought all these kind of things it might be. Uh, anyway, ended up being this, as I said, this stomach tissue cul-de-sac, which some months later they were able to simply vivisect to, to cut out. And then it doesn't grow back or anything like that. So I was very lucky that there were a long list of really nasty things that it, it could have been. And um, there was, that's why they're throwing everything in the book at me. But then it ended up being this thing at the bottom, which is really, really rare. And it's definitely not that, but it ended up being that. Yeah. So and then there were luck, uh, luck. So luckily some months later, um, they simply cut that, that bit out. And it, it hasn't bothered me since. But anyway, it was in the aftermath of that, in the days and, and, and week after that, that I was in the hospital, uh, still quite close um, to dying in those, in those next hours, that this other experience that I mentioned to you about uh, being squeezed from out of the past and out of the future into, into something, you know, <laughs> was happening. So that's, uh, we've sort of reversed our way into that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, inside out. Um, yeah. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that like shook me up, and it it really sounds like that was a near death experience. And um, you know, you say that it's that learning and experience of learning, not an experience of awakening. You did say though that um, that somehow changed your life. So I'm curious, what, how did it change your life go, going forward? Well. If you could put it in words, even. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I mean, of course, there are some things one can't say, but I can't put into words. But I found it re-oriented, uh, it seemed like, more or less everything. So uh, coming out of that experience, um, I noticed that everything was upside down and different. So I reacted to things differently. Um, things that bothered me before didn't bother me anymore. Uh, other things I was more sensitive to. So it seemed like all the pieces have been moved around somehow inside. And this uh, sort of feeling, this, um, yeah, sort of seeing through a certain fixed view that I hadn't even recognized I had of separateness, perhaps, as they say, right? Um, meant that everything... Uh, had to be in a way relearned, so I had to discover uh, who who I was, I suppose, um, or or rather re acclimatize. That's a better way of saying it. I had to acclimatize to that new um, unmooring from that fixed view. So uh, I found that that was the case, and so I was also very very drawn. So previously, I'd enjoyed reading about the things I like to read about changed, actually. I'm perhaps more interested in reading about, you know, achieving this or achieving that. Suddenly that changed, and I was and I was resonating with, with other things. And so 
I spent the next couple of years, actually, I lived in a part of London near Greenwich Park, right next to Greenwich Park, which is a lovely park in uh, London. And I, would, I went there and I found this oak tree. I would just, I would sit under that oak tree. So for some uh, months, I sort of had to recover a bit. And then I had the surgery later on and I had to recover from that. So I was kind of not, should we say, my physical, um, you know, peak uh, in terms of I had to do a lot of recovery, essentially. So I would go to the park. I still, was still able to work, but I would go to the park and sit. Um, I still, you know, I worked for myself at the, those days, so I had a lot of time. I go to the park and I just meditate under this big oak tree. And I'd sit there, and it was very strange. The sorts of strange experiences I would have there. I was drawn to meditation there, and I have a lot of strange kind of meditation-style experiences there. I'd spend a lot of time sitting there. So I'd sit for about an hour, and I'd do, say, 20 minutes of yoga. And then I'd sit for an hour and do 20 minutes of yoga, and sit for an hour, and then do, you know, get up and then go and get a coffee uh, at the uh, Pavilion Cafe in the uh, top of the park. And then I'd come back down again, and I'd sit, and I'd just sit there for hour upon hour upon hour upon hour, day after day after day after day. And if it was raining, which it often does in the UK, I had this green poncho, which I, would, I used to uh, wear. I'd sit there in the rain <laughs> as well. Not getting wet, of course, because with the poncho, I didn't get wet. And I just was drawn there, it seemed, you know. Um, so I had this long period of meditating almost all the time that I wasn't doing anything else, um, which was a lot of the time. You know, in those days, um, my primary occupation was as a musician. So, you know, musicians have strange hours and, uh, you know, how it is with musicians. We, uh, you're on the gig, you're off the gig, uh, etc. You have often have the day free, certainly you have the day free. So I would spend a lot of the day in there, so in the park. Um, that's one of the ways it changed things. Um, it changed my, my, my life a lot. It made things a lot more fluid and a lot more, um, a lot less uh, tangible in a way, a lot less uh, fixed. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but now it sounds like a trip report to me. It sounds like, you know, a trip report. Uh, and isn't it the joke that the only people who are interested in trip reports are the people telling the trip report? <laughs> <laughs> is that yeah. the case? I mean, um, a lot of what you're sharing is kind of reminds me a little bit about the 5MEO for me. There's yeah. definitely similar type of shifts like that. Um, I am curious, though, you did say that you didn't consider this an experience of awakening, but uh, it, it kind of seems like it was to me. So I'm just wondering if you could say more on that, why you don't consider it awakening or, or yeah, because even like the whole, the separateness thing, like, you know, feeling less separate, it seems like it's at least moving in that direction. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Artem, on my podcast, I interview a lot of people, right? And a lot of people claim to various degrees of enlightenment and attainment on there, on the podcast, right? Um, all I can say is the more I hear people talk about their attainments and enlightenments, the clearer it becomes to me is that it becomes to me that whatever it is they're up to is not what I'm up to. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my experience. They have these, they, they describe it, how they got there, all these sort of things. Yeah, I don't map, I don't map it onto that at all. So, you know, when I, when I think of awakenings and so on, I think of these, of the sorts of things people tell me about in the podcast. Um, you know, and I'm very interested in that. I love to hear people's stories of 
Like that's why I watched your five MEO DMT video. It's like the first or second video you did, right? Back at the very beginning of your channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was fascinated to to hear that, as well as the sort of you know, it was a tremendous experience. But then also something of a crisis afterwards, it seems too, or a lot of adjustments to be done. Yeah, for a while, I think it <laughs> I think it only recently kind of stabilized for me. Um, yeah, it was just too much. Like I don't know where, where to put this or how to integrate this or what do I do with this. Uh, kind yeah. of thing yeah so just coming well back. how did you put it how did you put it back together again what did you find or did you put it back together again <clears throat> yeah i don't know if i did anything or if it just kind of works itself out um i think yeah i just think like it, with with psychedelics there's not i think some, we're gonna find as we go deeper and deeper into this and learn more and more that there needs to be a better way of integrating these kind of things and just these kind of experiences so there's there was like stages of it and probably one stage that kind of helped was uh daniel ingram's book like running across yeah. the mastering of teachings of the buddha uh and just like looking at his um the map of insights and all of that and just now now that i look back on it it's it's kind of less helpful but i think at that point it, it kind of grounded me oriented me and like the whole dark night part thing i'm like all right this makes sense like i had this like a and p experience that's what he calls it like that's how i mapped it at the time um and then i just st slowly was starting to piece it back together like okay this is what happened to me and like um i think a big part of it was just learning um i, I don't know it's just like to me it's like that's the taste of the ultimate that's the taste of the ultimate that's a complete non-dual experience complete ego dissolving experience oneness with everything and then you come into relative reality where there's this sense of separation and like the the big insight for me i did this three times and the big insight was coming out of it was like oh you know the the ego is an illusion and this whole sense of similar to what you said, like the achieving, like having to achieve or like having to step on other people's toes, having to pull people off the ladder to get somewhere. Somehow that was very illusory and it was just like a, an appearance. Like it appears like this is what we need to do. And the message that it kind of gave me was like, oh, there's all you need to do is just love. You need to live in love and fully embody love. Like at the end of the day, that's all it's really about. And coming out of the experience there's a for me all three times it was kind of a crying and a laughing at the same time the crying was you, you know there's tears of joy but there's also some kind of grief of like oh my god why are we living like this or why have i been living like this kind of stuck in this illusion and then there's the relief of like oh it's so simple it's so simple it's just about love uh, but then when you come out, you know, you come out of it and you get this, you know, you, you know, at that moment, maybe I thought I was enlightened or whatever. I got it. I got, you know, this whole thing, this whole thing of life. I got the answer. And then you come back and like, oh, I don't still got the answer because I still have the reactivity. I still have the relative things that I have to deal with. And I don't know how to live from that place of love, to live from that place of non-reactivity and that place of non-separation i don't know how to do that and i think i've just been learning how to more skillfully integrate that and just become more embodied and more not trying to oh i need to get away from relative reality i need to get away from this illusion i need to you know get away from samsara i need to get back to that place um and kind of saying no this is it right now this i'm here now how can i live within the framing of the ego and within this interface and um see that yeah there's something illusory there and and not 
be so identified with it, but also still be able to participate in this human experience. And it's, I think it's just been a learning experience for me, just gradually unpacking. But definitely, I think for like the first three years, it was just, yeah, it was just a lot of ups and downs. And like, I don't know how to relate to other people. I don't know where to put this. I don't know what I do. So uh, that's how it kind of was for me. Yeah. At that time, I, I mentioned it to a few, to a couple of my teachers and one or two uh, friends who were, if you want, in a position to uh, comment on it, you could say. And then I had the strong sense of just forgetting it. And so after two, three years, I mentioned it to a couple of teachers. Um, uh, and then, so I didn't talk about this at all at the time, really. And then, um, uh, and then I mentioned it to a couple of teachers and a couple of friends. And then, then that, that, that happened in the course of a span of months. And then um, I just stopped thinking about it and stopped talking about it. I just dropped it, let it go. And I remember going into winter thinking, you know, that's it. This, you know, I'm not going to, this is not going to become a story, you know, like then some of the, sometimes there's like the come to Jesus story or sometimes the non-dual teachers, they've always got to have their, you know, epiphany moment that they, you know, they constantly mine for, you know, clout and so on. I thought, oh, you know, it's just, it just seems so, so silly. So I, I just, I just uh, dropped it and didn't talk about it for a long time. And then only later, much, much later on now, um, I occasionally will mention it in, in a context like this because it's an interesting story, I suppose. But um, I would describe it in a sense as a recontextualizing of the sense of self. It was a recontextualizing of the sense of self. That that was how I described it at the time. Um, or, you know, when I mentioned it to a couple of those my teachers two or three years later, um, I described it as a recontextualizing of the sense of self. So it's uh, the self is still there. I'm still here. Evidently, here I am. <laughs> You know, but the context is rather different. This is sort of figure out ground reversal. And, you know, I think that's what I'm hearing in your and what you're saying too. Everything's the same but different, and yeah, so yeah. how you have to do all the same things but differently, including experience oneself and be oneself actually. But there's such a different context that everything is everything is um, requires an acclimatization. Yeah, yeah, an acclimatization. I think. I prefer to integration because acclimatization, uh, integration has the sense of putting things back together again. And I'm not entirely sure that's necessarily possible or even um, desirable, maybe. But acclimatization, just getting used to it, getting used to, just getting used to it, learning to operate um, in the ambiguity of it uh, seems to be uh, something that you know is as you say kind of inevitable right just time i think time takes care of that yeah time and and practice you know meditation helps a great deal yeah i i think that also helped me with a lot of the psychedelic experiences like that mm. just help integrate them and i think it also made them more powerful uh, mm. in in particular the five meo and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of what you're saying just that maps back. Like one, when I had the toad experience, like I couldn't stop talking about it for years, probably for like two years. That was my go-to story. Anybody I met, that I'm going right at that. And then after a while, it just burned itself out. And, you know, I saw it, it was like, that's a story. It, somehow it became like a, 
like a spiritual materialist materialism, even though the story was prof- and still it's the most profound experiences that I've had. And still, like I said, it's a story I'll still share and, and speak about. But there stopped being this compulsion and this, oh, I got to keep coming back to it. Um, and I think that's part of like it, that kind of I stopped thinking about it so much, stopped talking about it so much. And it was like, yeah, that was just an experience, even though there was something that seemed to illuminate and shift. Um, yeah, it's something about it. It was some, something about it was very significant, but then something about it was very ordinary. Like it was just another experience. Yeah, exactly. I got to the point where I mentioned it, like I said, two, three years later, I said it to a couple of friends and a couple of, um, I mean, two friends and two teachers. And, uh, you know, because I just wanted to run it by some people that I, you know, they were my teachers in that area of, of, of meditation and so on. And, and, and I just wanted to, you know, just run it by them so I could drop it. <laughs> now, it wasn't that I was talking about it a lot, because I didn't talk about it a lot. But nonetheless, it's like, should should I be doing something? Is there something that I should do or is with this? Or is there some kind of thing I should do now? Or can I just drop it? You know, and just move on with my life, uh, with life, and that that that's why I needed to run it by them, and it was it was wonderful actually to do that. Um, and one of those people was Shinzen Young actually, yeah. And so you know, I told him and um, another one of my teachers, Godfrey Devereaux, about it, and two two of my uh, close friends who were well informed about such things, and they gave me whatever feedback they gave me. It was kind of really okay. Great. Now I just move on. <laughs> they <laughs> gave you permission to drop it. <laughs> no, they didn't give me permission to do anything, um, but I felt that any obligation I might have to myself or to, uh, yeah, to that experience or anything like that was relieved at that point because you don't want to throw away significant and special things. Um, but on the other hand, as you point out, there's this strange sense in which it's significant and special on the one hand, but on the other hand, quite normal and quite ordinary, especially when, in my case, I didn't do anything. It wasn't like I was meditating high in the Himalayas and then suddenly something happened. It wasn't like that. Like so many of my guests, you know, meditate and do great spiritual seeking and then they reach a goal that they'd attain, they'd, they'd been seeking to attain. I wasn't seeking to attain anything. I just happened to, you know, void massive amounts of blood <laughs> and almost die. So, you know, it wasn't, in that context of, you know, and the same with, you know, you, it's, it seems you didn't really know what you were getting into from, at least that's what it said in your, I got the sense from your video, you didn't really know what you're getting into. And so now, now you've got into it. So, you know, one doesn't want to be um, careless with life. But on the other hand, I think you expressed it very well, actually. It's so ordinary as well. And um, there's something uh, wonderfully uh, liberating, actually in um, just letting it go, letting it go. It doesn't mean going back to this, going back to the way it was. It doesn't mean that. It just means don't fixate one's identity on it. Don't make it an essential biographical point that one always relates from uh, constantly. Because then all you've done is changed one fixed position for another fixed position. You've gone from one prison cell to another prison cell, except this new prison cell has prayer flags and incense. <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So that's that's another reason why you know I don't like this uh, as an awakening. No, I lose a learning experience. Yeah, but I think awakening is too final for me. Um, it's too fixed for me. Uh, I don't like the connotations that go along with it. But in a, in another sense, every learning is an awakening, isn't it? To something new. So in that sense, everything one learns is is an awakening of kind, right? So, but that's not the sense that you meant. I understand. You know, I don't like the um, to use that word in in description of, of that kind of an experience. It implies something which, um, especially having listened to many of my guests, it implies something which is it's not something I I can claim. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, Daniel speaks about the models of awake, awakening, and it seems like everybody has their own model, and. Yeah. Two ways, let's say two ways of talking about it is one is like there's a certain point you have to get to. Like once you've gotten to that point and once you've crossed over that threshold, you know, for some people that's stream entry, whatever, um, you're awakened. But then there's another way of looking at it, which is more of a spectrum. It's like, are you ever fully, are you ever fully awakened, fully liberated? Are you fully extinguished, fully done, fully developed? Um, you know, and it's, there's different ways of looking at it. And some would say that, you know, there are clear markers, like you have to, <laughs> there's certain things that have to be transcended and there's certain markers that have that kind of identify that, yes, you are in fact awakened or yes, you are this path or that path or mm. third path, fourth path. Um, and there's something appealing about the whole, you know, crossing a threshold and like climbing the top of a mountain. And now I'm there. Um, I think in recent years, I kind of started looking at it more of a spe- as a spectrum thing. Like it's just, we're all kind of moving towards it somehow <laughs> and somebody's further down there and realize things in a deeper level. But um, yeah, it just, it seems like there is, yeah, I don't know. Ev- everybody has a different definition and that's, I think where we run into all these problems and all the people you've hosted, you get all of them in a room and they'll probably uh-huh. disagree on <laughs> a lot of things regarding awakening <laughs> yeah yeah you're right it's one of the problems with that word isn't it that a hundred people mean a hundred different things with that same word you know and there's even debate and argument within traditions about that there's no such thing really as a buddhist awakening for example versus a hindu one or a christian one not really there's as much diversity within the traditions as there is between them it seems yeah and um and maybe this is a, a good part to kind of dive a little deeper into your podcast and we already started talking about awakening which is also something i wanted to talk about um you know i love your podcast i think it's one of the best um I, like i'm and i wanted to say i'm just really <laughs> i'm grateful that your kind of condition and all that stabilized because if it have, hadn't we wouldn't have had the, the, this great podcast and all these great interviews that you've done over the last several years um and and it is I think one of the best meditation spirituality podcasts. Um, it's one of the podcasts that I've been listening to a lot, especially recently. Uh, maybe the only other podcast in that space that I think is of that quality is perhaps Michael Taft's Deconstructing Yourself, which is another fascinating one. Um, but I, I'd like to start by just kind of asking, uh, inquiring into the title Guru Viking. I kind of have a story of what that means, but I just want to see if if how you came up with that or what that means for you. Uh, that's funny, yeah. Well, thank you very much for those kind words, yeah. You know, I interviewed Michael Taft recently a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, uh, amazing, um, amazing both of those episodes, and I'm actually doing his meditation course in a, in oh, really? a, in a week or two, yeah. 
You know, he's also Shinz, uh, Shinzen Young student. Did you know yes, that? Or yes, Wallace absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a, um, uh, well, yeah, and also Michael Taft, as you probably know, uh, used to work at Sounds True, which is a yeah, for sure. You know, spiritual kind of new age religious publisher. And yes. he edited the audio, did the audio editing, I believe, on Shinzen's um, breakout hit, Science of Enlightenment CD set, which I listened Amazing. to a lot in those days, yeah. And also helped him edit uh, a great deal um, of the book version of that, The Science of Enlightenment, which came out only in recent years, actually. So great book. Almost, I think, 10, 15 years later than the t- CD set. So he goes a long way back to Shinzen. Yeah, it was really interesting to interview him. Um, I sat beside him, actually, at a couple of retreats of Shinzen's before, but because it's a silent retreat, you don't speak, you know, so... You're Michael Taff, but I can't say anything to you. <laughs> well, what I mean is, you know, there's a lot of times at these Shinzen retreats, um, you meet people kind of in the sense that I, you know, meditated with some of them for many years, but never m- talked to them. <laughs> you have a little bit of chatting at the end, but you can't get around everybody. So there's a lot of people you know on a kind of site basis. Anyway, yeah, he's he's a very interesting guy, Michael Taft. Uh, Guru Viking, well, you know, you've got to have a name for these things. My name's Steve, right? And so I'm not just going to say Steve, right? It's Steve, the Steve podcast. The yeah. Steve James show. <laughs> yeah, the Steve James show could be about anything, right? I yeah, mean, it could yeah. be about knitting or, you know, claymore uh, swinging or who knows what, right? I mean, the sword, not the mine. So uh, you've got to have a name. And so Guru Viking, because it's about meditation, spirituality, and contemplative stuff, uh, talking to practitioners, teachers, scholars, etc. right? And I'm super interested in all that kind of thing, too. So my website's Guru Viking. So that's that part, the interest in spiritual things. And then... The Viking part is, of course, I grew up on this little island called Shetland, which is um, Viking, kind of Viking place. And I have a big red beard and I live on a boat. This is a boat, by the way, in case people are wondering. It's not a shed or a bunker, although I would love to live in a bunker. I would love to have my own, very own bunker. That would be very cool. But anyway, I live on this, this canal boat. So I live on a boat. This is kind of like a Viking. Um, there's some other things that are kind of Viking as well. So that's what it comes down to. So Guru uh, Viking. I also like... It's got a bit of a humor to it, a bit of tongue-in-cheek. I'm not really a guru, right? I'm not really a guru, and I'm not really a Viking, right? Obviously, we know that Vikings, as the scholars will tell us, Viking is a job description. You know, you, you go Viking, right? You, you're, not, you're not a Viking, but uh, we okay, okay, so I know all that. So it's kind of a humorous, slightly tongue-in-cheek, maybe Monty Python kind of slightly British humor um, way about it. So it's got a bit, a bit of humor in it as well, which is part of my personality. Uh, it's not funny. It's not a spoof, what we're doing on the podcast. It's not a spoof, but there's a little bit of playfulness in the title. So that's how that came to be, Guru Viking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of have a similar story, but like my story is like, oh, you're you're this Viking guy and you hunt down gurus. Like you, you go all around the world looking for gurus, the Guru Viking. Oh, I like that. That's better. That's a better story. I like that story. Yeah, then I I hunt them down and make them come on my podcast. Yeah, tell me all your secrets to awakening. Share all the. <laughs> tell everybody yeah. how to do it. Yeah, that's I like that. that's I like great. That. Yeah, so your podcast has uh, at this point well over 160 episodes, most of which you've recorded in the last three years. That's at least one podcast per week. Uh, consistency yeah. and commitment. That's 
very impressive. And you also interview some of the most fascinating spiritual uh, teachers and practitioners. Many of them I've never heard of until they were on your podcast. So I'm very curious about your process for creating the show. How do you find these interesting and esoteric guests and how do you prepare for them? Just kind of if you could share a little bit more, that's kind of a selfish question that I have given that I have my own podcast. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you again for such kind words about it. Yeah. Um, well, I started, you know, started off interviewing people I knew, some friends um, or acquaintances. People like Lauren Roche and uh, etc. If you look back to who was my first episode, for example, someone that I'd met and knew and was friends with, I've been friends with for some some time. So sometimes it's like that, or um, sometimes people email me and say ask if they can be interviewed. That happens sometimes, or a student will email and say, um, "Would you email my you know guru?" <laughs> my teacher or whatever, you know, or a viewer will email and say, I really like this person, not necessarily their guru or teacher or something, but I really like this person. I'd love to see you interview this person. So sometimes I get, so I get like suggestions over Instagram and um, email, which is always very interesting and very cool, actually. Uh, sometimes other guests will recommend other guests. And plus in my reading, I encounter all kinds of people reading and uh, invite them too if I uh, but I, I invite so I'm always delighted when people say yes because often people say no actually as you probably encountered this too I don't of know course. if you've of yeah. <laughs> yeah so you know a lot of people say no and um, of course as, the, as time goes by less people say no yeah uh, because initially it's like who is this guy guru viking he's is he a guru or is this he seems a little bit you know seems a little bit like weird and crazy he's only got three episodes you know <laughs> Yeah, I'm far too important to appear on a podcast like that. So, you know, they don't do it. But over time, that changes. But um, so that's how I do it. I just follow my interest, really. And also recommendations and suggestions that other, others give me. And not being afraid to ask the people that I really want to interview. And the worst that can happen is they say no. Yeah, the worst. Yeah. that can. sometimes they say no kind of rude. But most of the time, they say no really politely and nicely. And the rude ones are, are often they make the best stories. <laughs> Yeah, I got a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, you never know what kind of day someone's had, I guess, when they write that email. But So anyway, uh, my process is that when I've secured the guest, um, I will do a bit of research on them, of course, right? O often I'll have done that before, but not always as in-depth. So I'll try to read what they've written and, um, you know, watch any lectures they may have and just get to know them. And get to know their body of work and but of course i generally have a sense of why well not generally i always have a sense of why i want to interview somebody first and so i'll already have done some pre-reading and i really find something about them really cool or interesting or fascinating or you know controversial maybe so i will get deeper into their work and then i prepare my questions as jumping off points really um it's good to have good questions as a jumping off point but as you know, the, the conversations can go in some other direction, and it's not—it's not—it's not uncommon for me to have at least half or more of my questions just n not used. So one finds—I find—I prepare a lot more than I end up using, just in case. Because some guests are really like myself, as you can tell, will just talk and talk and talk and talk and go off on all these really weird tangents. Right? That's what I'm doing. 
but other guests are more precise and they will give you just the answer to the question you asked and then nothing. <laughs> and then you think, uh oh, <laughs> um, you know, this is going to be quick. I don't know how many questions do I have if they keep answering in such a precise way, then I'm going to be out of time. So, and also, of course, what the guests say will make more questions come. So sometimes they'll say something that gives me another question that I hadn't prepared. So that's more or less the process. Is that the sort of thing you were looking for? Yeah, uh, very similar to that. Um, I A lot of the guests that I interview, I read a lot of their books, and that usually is a lot of times I'll just read the books and I'll do a lot of work up front before even getting the get the guest. Yeah. Um, some, some people don't are guests that don't have books like yourself. I just been following for a while. So it wasn't necessarily a book. It wasn't like meticulous note taking. And it was kind of easier to prepare for you just because I've seen so much of your podcast. And I think we just have a lot of similar interests and yeah. then just kind of going on your website. I was able to find other interesting bits of information for you. And actually I, I think for your interview, I got like more, a lot more questions than um, even for a lot of my other interviews that I've done, mm. because there's so many pieces to your life, I feel like so many, and there's just so much that's interesting, because I guess we just have a lot of similarity with like the meditation and awakening, it's just that just, yeah. and that's why I think I've been watching your, there's a lot of podcasts, right? And I just, between creating my own podcast and everything else I have in my life, I don't really have time to watch too many of them. So your podcast has just been one of those that just, just given where I'm at is kind of interesting. And uh, so um, that means a lot. Thank you, Artem. Yeah, there are so many similarities. You're right. And that became clear to me when I started watching some of your earlier videos where you're before you're interviewing people, you know, and you're talking more about your own experiences. I noticed that too. But I think you've, you've said something which I think is really the key. Interesting, right? You said that word interesting. You were interested in you're talking, you know, about, I guess, me and certain things. You got interested in me. And that's, I think, that's what I do as well. I find myself very interested in my guests. I find them interesting. I think that's an important quality. So I really want to know about them and, and listen to what they say and respond with interest. And then it becomes comes quite naturally. A lot of preparation and then the interest, I think, goes a long way. And that's a quality, it seems, you're sharing as well. Yeah. Um, so as a couple other things, I mean, there's a bunch of other questions I have, but I guess you mentioned Shit and Zen Young a lot. And that's one of the questions I had is, um, you know, how did you, how and when did you first come across Shin Zen and how has interacting with him impacted you? Anything else you could share on your relationship with him? Wow. Yeah. Well, I met, well, I, I, I came across him before I met him. So I, I think I came across him probably on YouTube. Uh, or maybe what was this? I don't know. Twelve years ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. Is that possible? How long's YouTube been going? Yeah, it's been around. It's been around. Yeah. Um. Or maybe. Yeah, I don't quite recall, but I remember seeing him on YouTube and all that and, and listening to the Science of Enlightenment series. Now, how I got hold of that, I don't know, but I don't think I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is another thing. It may have been part of some bundle that came my way somehow or another. Uh, I think that's probably more likely the case, actually, mm -hmm. that somehow or another it was part of some, you know, zip file that uh, I don't know how it got on my hard drive. But anyway, um, back in those days, early 20s and so on. 
so um, I came across it, yeah. And well, uh, uh, and then eventually I started going on retreats with him in person and, you know, training with him, you could say in person. Um, yeah, well, Shinzen's a very interesting teacher because he is really, certainly, my impression of him in those days, and he's, he goes through many iterations and he changes and he has different emphases over the years. He's famous actually for kind of emphasizing different things in different parts of his own, I suppose, intellectual um, unfolding. Now he's doing neuroscience research at University of Arizona, for example, and I've, he's been on my podcast many times, along with his um, collaborator, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti and others, you know, coming up there all the time. So, you know, he's in that kind of phase. But I remember he's very hardcore about practice. He was very into long sitting, duration sitting, so strong determination sitting equals it, sitting for, you know, one to four hours or, or perhaps longer. He was very inter interested in that as both a means of training as well as a yardstick of uh, effective ones training. So that's something I took on board. He's got a tremendous, um, uh, I mean, I could go on and on and on for another two hours about what, and more from about what I learned from Shinzen. So you'll have to forgive me for giving an incomplete top of the mind summary. Another thing that has been, I think, amazing about Shinzen is the way in which he's attempted a, to, to create a taxonomy of meditation techniques, a way of categorizing them, but without diluting them, so not homogenizing them, so that they all fit into some artificial way, but giving each technique from each tradition, allowing it to retain its character and its flavor and its instruction set, and it's even its philosophical view. Um, but to somehow see these in a relationship or, or, or a taxonomy, essentially, of, uh, in which relationships can be seen or uh, contrasts can be appreciated without diluting the individual techniques and views themselves. I think that's, that's pretty special. Of course, you probably know he was trained in as a scholar and speaks many of the source languages of those contemplative techniques. So he's, you know, his Chinese, his Sanskrit, you know, fluent in Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. So he, he, he has that tremendous, obviously, intellect, as well as um, a scholarly training, as well as um, a psychonaut. He was heavy into his psychedelics too, as you, as you uh, perhaps know, um, in his early days. And then he got super into his meditation. I mean, really. And he abandoned the scholarship and just went full on into that. So he's got that kind of interesting mix of IQ the, you know, tremendous IQ, but then also this tremendous kind of gung-ho diving in, you know, thing. So amazing. And of course, I met him when he was in his, I suppose, 60s. You know, that's when I met him. So he's had a lot of life and uh, done a lot of really uh, amazing things. So all that informs it. He's not um, purely a theorist. He's a practitioner, but he's not just a practitioner. He also understands the broader philosophical um, and historical perspectives uh, to an extent, you know, to an extent, as we're all limited, of course, and in the original languages, in those places, with the, in those cultures, learning those techniques often in those cultures in which they're practiced from masters of those places, you know. So this sort of thing is amazing to me. Um, so I think it's, it's that, this um, mixture of, uh, and he's very visionary in the sense that he attempts to, he's attempting always to progress things and he'll throw his own system out and he'll change his own system in order to iterate the new thing. And he'll, I've seen him listen to somebody question him or um, challenge him in a sort of retreat scenario on, on something that he, the way he organizes, and then he integrates that. And he's, he's not afraid to do that. So, yeah, I think he's um really cool, interesting uh, man.
those are some things. Um, so what did I learn from him? Of course, all of that influenced me tremendously. Uh, I learned many meditation techniques from him in that context. I learned, I did lots and lots of practice with him. I learned a lot about practice itself. I learned a lot about the sorts of path that one, the territory one traverses. He's very multidisciplinary. So we always went on retreats, um, the ones I did with him in this uh, Catholic retreat center, Palace Verdes. And so we're in this Catholic situation. So very often his Dharma talks would be about T.S. Eliot and Teresa of Avila and uh, Cloud of Unknowing and much to the, you know, much to the irritation, I think, sometimes of people who, you know, to, to come and all you're hearing about is, you know, the uh, uh, ancient, you know, Renaissance art and um, mathematics and, uh, you know, Catholic mystics and so on. Uh, or Jewish spirituality, for example. And yes, of course, Buddhist, Zen, uh, etc. He'd bring all that into. So this also I found tre tremendously wonderful. This cultural drawing on the streams of culture and poetry and literature and uh, history, as well as ex more explicitly religious uh, themes, science, you know, bringing it all in. It's a melting pot of... Uh, of learning and exploration. That was my experience studying the Shinzen. That's an incomplete description, um, but, um, you know, and he was always te teaching us to teach also. Very often the way he would teach us was by teaching us how to teach it. Uh, that was the frame he often took. So we, he'd teach us techniques and he'd refer to us almost like we were teachers, which of course, you know, some were and some weren't. But he always, in other words, he's always showing his workings, as we'd say in, uh, in in school. He's showing us how he arrives at the point he's at, why he says it this way, and why why you don't want to say it that way because that implies this. And so he's t he's giving us how it's done. He's showing us the recipe <laughs> all the time. Um, I find that, of course, very educational as well. Very educational as well. So non dogmatic, um, rigorous practice intellectually curious across traditions across genres yeah so yeah wonderful teacher in my experience yeah yeah that was a beautiful testimonial not that shenzhen needs any but if he needed one this could have been a, a good one and i think yeah it, well uh, you know as they say experiences may differ um, what do they say? You know, results may differ. Isn't yeah, that what you've yeah, got to yeah. say? You've got to give that caveat. I'm not saying, you know, that everyone will have that experience. I'm, you're asking about my, and it's yeah, also part yeah. of where you're at in your own life and development and where the teacher is at. And there's all these different, isn't it the five perfections, right? Uh, right. You know, perfect. Well, I mean, not perfect, but, you know, perfect teacher, perfect student, perfect time, perfect teaching, you know, perfect place. So these, these five things come together and it's magical when that happens. And I have a great deal of appreciation for uh, my time you know, he doesn't teach in person retreats anymore. So my time, my time in that container was still wonderful. Um, it was so wonderful. I have a great uh, appreciation for that. And indeed other teachers have had, but if you ask about Shinzen, yeah. Wow. So in influential and wonderful. Yeah. So I'm, I'm mindful of the time. Um, and maybe I could, uh, squeeze in one more question. Yeah. Um, besides for maybe, uh, besides for Shenzhen Young, out of the other guests you've hosted, which do you feel had the biggest impact, whether in an inspirational way or maybe programmatically, maybe somehow benefiting your meditation practice? Is there anybody else that really stands out for you? Well, I must say they all, you know, impact me in 
many ways. And but I can say that I've interviewed um, my I have interviewed some of my teachers on, on that podcast who were my teachers before or around that time. So I've interviewed Godfrey Devereaux, for example, and he was um, I learned yoga from him and yoga and he tra trained me to be a yoga teacher also. But he was also steeped in Zen, as you learned from his um, particular uh, interview, Godfrey Devereaux, you can look him up. And so we did a lot of meditating and it was quite, quite deep. And he was not the kind of yoga that you, you know, not yoga as we know it, Jim, a very different kind of approach to yoga, really coming from, um, you know, Zen style awakened perspective, I would say. So I have been lucky to interview him a couple of times. So, you know, of course, he was very influential because I studied with him for several years before I even had a podcast, you know. Um, a very interesting guy. And uh, yeah, there have been others too. Uh, Glenn Mullen, you know, I am. Um, he was, he was, uh, has been influential in, in, in some ways. I mean, I can't really choose. I mean, they're, they're also, they're also one. I mean, Glenn Mullen, I, I don't want to put, uh, diminish that, you know, very influential, I should say, you know, very influential indeed. But many of them have been. I mean, just, being lucky enough to spend an hour or two with some of these people uh, is, I think, always wonderful. And if I interview them again and again, sometimes some guests I'll interview them again and again, and you get to spend even more time with them and you ask them whatever you like and communicate with them. And yeah, it's wonderful. You can't help but be enriched by that, I think. So I really do think that all my guests have enriched me as a person by virtue of spending time with them. Yeah, I think uh, I think your your podcast is enriching all of us. Uh, just huh. a lot of wisdom and a lot of different perspectives. And um, I think just the guests, like a lot of these guests, I haven't seen anywhere else. I have never heard of them before, or seen them before. Um, one that really stands out for me, like Belson Armstrong. That's been like really interesting to kind of see him and have him talk and have him come on and speak with Daniel Ingram. And mm -hmm. I like how you bring people together too and have like debates and mm -hmm. just, yeah. And just like the way you interview, like just like you have this rigorous style, like just like let's get to the deeper level of truth. Give us a little more information and just um, like a very disciplined, committed way of interviewing and just being very present, like, you often won't even share anything about yourself. That's why I actually also wanted to speak to you because like, you know, if, if the guest ever like throws it back into your court, you'll just say usually like one or two things and just cut it off. I'm just like, wow, I, I can't be that disciplined. I like to talk way too much. Like I got to say something too, but um, yeah, I really appreciate the show. I really appreciate what you've been doing. And um, it's just, it's fascinating. It's valuable and it's, it's unique. It's different. Um, yeah. So Thanks so much for that. Oh, thank you, Artem. That's very kind of you to say. It means a lot. Yeah, and uh, thanks so much for coming on here and being on the show. And hopefully we get to speak again because I have so many other questions. So there's just so much, so many layers to your life. And I'm just excited to see where your journey takes you. Oh, thank you very much. I'd be happy to come back. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot and take care.